This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I can tell you exactly how I found out. I was laying on my bunk in the hole in the whole county jail when Captain Jim Ash, J.P. Morgan's uh, friend, came into the cell and said, J.P. Morgan killed himself. And I looked Jim Ash in the eye, and I said, J.P. Morgan was just named a suspect. And Jim Ash turned around and left. That's how that went down right there. I knew then something was up, something terrible was up. There was definitely a, a dark side of that north side precinct that was being run by at least J.P. Morgan and then maybe some others. It was in the drug protection racket. That was, uh, I've talked to people, uh, what little investigation I've done on this side of the fence. And uh, I've heard their versions of what was going on. And then, I mean, they jived up what I was seeing and hearing on the street back then. So I believe it was there. Uh, you know, whatever I had or whatever they thought I had, it scared some people really bad. So uh, this was the net result of all that, I guess. So off the bat, you've got Walt Britt looking into J.P. Morgan and has confidential informants saying that J.P. Morgan is responsible for this frame up. And so that's bad enough. Then you have J.P. Morgan actually kills himself. Then you have what occurred at J.P. Morgan's house with Bodie Hurst. Less than one month after Imogene Thompson's untimely death, Gwinnett County police officer J.P. Morgan's suicide seemed to come as a surprise to everyone. But it was an event taking place immediately after Morgan's self-inflicted fatal gunshot wound that would make his death the subject of newspapers across the Atlanta area. And this is where the story takes yet another turn. I'm Sean Kipe. From Imperative Entertainment, this is In the Land of Lies. Bodie Hurst is actually one of the police officers that Steve Mitchell told us was someone he was familiar with uh, and being one of the police officers that he, quote unquote, had his eye on. David Bodie Hurst, who everyone called Bodie, had numerous infractions throughout his law enforcement career. He was reprimanded for lying about his involvement with the SWAT team in order to take a day off work, and lying under oath during a 1993 deposition hearing in which police say he took a $5 bill from a store cashier under the false pretense that it was counterfeit and never returned it. He had numerous counts of you know, theft by taking. He stole from the evidence room. Uh, he stole $10,000, he stole a diamond ring, and then he made false statements to internal affairs about those incidents. And so he was charged with false statements, theft by taking, violations of oath of office. The $10,000 Hearst stole from a police evidence room in 1991 
was evidence from a 1987 federal case involving theft of AT&T trade secrets. A suspect had given undercover agents two payments of $4,000 and $6,000 in exchange for AT&T blueprints. And, as Henry mentioned, Hearst also stole a large diamond ring from an evidence room which he gave to his girlfriend, who was also employed in law enforcement. An article by Maria Fernandez from June of 1995 in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that Hearst was also charged with stealing surveillance equipment from a convention in Tennessee, which he then brought back to Georgia, crossing state lines, thus making it a felony. Many of these infractions happened well before Michael Chappell's arrest and J.P. Morgan's suicide. Yet Hearst was still an active law enforcement officer until early 1994, when he was finally fired. But on May 10, 1993, Hearst performed what was perhaps his most insidious act. Laddie, who was, you know, the chief investigator or the chief detective at the time, said that he was sent in to, quote unquote, find the suicide note or, you know, procure the suicide note because they expected that it had been on J.P. Morgan's computer. And instead of going in and securing a suicide note, Bodie Hearst deleted everything on the hard drive and then destroyed the hard drives. So he tampered with and destroyed all of the evidence contained on the dual hard drives in J.P. Morgan's home office. This quote of investigator John Laddie is from an article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Quote, Detectives were looking for a possible suicide note that Morgan might have left on one of his two computers, as Morgan documented everything on computers. End quote. There were definitely multiple hard drives, and all of that was deleted and destroyed. Henry brings up the fact that multiple hard drives were destroyed for a reason. Think about this. This is 1993. You know, today, if I wanted to delete everything on my hard drive, it'd probably take about five minutes. Boom, I, you know, press a couple of buttons, say, yes, I'm sure, yes, I'm sure and I can wipe my hard drive. Back then, that would have taken hours. And you would have literally had to delete certain files, you know, one at a time. And and so this wasn't something where he just went in, typed a few keys, pressed a few buttons, and it was done. This took some time to do. Detectives noted that Morgan documented everything on his computers, which was the reason Hearst was instructed by Laddie to assist in the investigation and search the computers to see if a suicide note had been left there. I couldn't find in my research exactly how it was found out that Bodie Hearst destroyed these hard drives, but there was enough documentation to show that he most certainly did in local newspapers like the AJC. Hearst was charged with numerous felonies dating between 1991 and 93. After being fired from Gwinnett County in 1994, Hearst was allowed to keep the $10,000 stolen from the evidence room, though his girlfriend was forced to relinquish the diamond ring. But then something interesting and unexpected happened. Within weeks of Chapel's conviction, all of Hearst's felony charges seemed to have been dropped. Why? Hearst eventually walked away with community service, his freedom, and 10 grand. He served no real jail time. 
The only reason Bodie Hurst was charged with this because I, to this day I still believe there's more good good guys and bad guys in the cop business, and there was too many good people around there that saw what was being done, and they had some real drama amongst themselves. So Bodie had to Bodie had to be charged. It doesn't surprise me though, but I tell you what it does tell me. Something was on those computers that was so desperately damning to some people or peoples, maybe even higher-ranking peoples, that he would take such a chance to do that in front of so many, so many eyeballs. And uh, I would love to hear the answer to that. And some, some speculation of a suicide note? Yes, possibly. My opinion is that whatever was on those computers, copies of it are in a safety deposit box somewhere being held ransom. That's my opinion. That's how Mr. Hurst has stayed out of trouble so long. Like I said, just all you got to do is not follow the money, but follow the uh, criminal records of these people. See who who's getting what sweetheart deal. Then you'll you'll see. There's some guys down here doing 25 and 30 years for uh, just violation of oath of office. And when I show them that Mr. Hearst's uh, record that was dropped, oh, they get, they get hot. And how do you explain the numerous felony charges of a police officer being swept away as if the crimes had never been committed at all? Chapel's theory that there might be copies of the deleted files kept in a lockbox somewhere as an insurance policy of sorts is one that Henry believes could possibly have some merit. You know, I reached out to... Bodie Hurst attorney, and he he spoke to me about a number of things. He wouldn't, I think he wouldn't go into any, you know, personal details or what have you, but he was, you know, answering my questions, yes or no, and, and sharing the details with me that he knew about Mike and their history and his own history. So one of the questions I asked was, is there any evidence of what was on that hard drive, maybe, you know, in a safe deposit box somewhere? Or, you know, is there evidence that he kept stashed away somewhere? And uh, he looked at me and said, no comment. And I just thought it was strange. If, if the answer was no, you would think he would have said no. I can understand why he wouldn't say yes, but uh, he said no comment. What was in those deleted files? And could Hearst have had enough time to delete all the files on two separate hard drives of Morgan's at an active crime scene without ample time and the cooperation, or at least knowledge, of other investigators present. Well, it, go, it goes to my theory of how Mr. Hurst got away with all of those felonies in the first place. Keep in mind, he didn't testify in any other case. He didn't testify in this case. He literally offered nothing to the district attorney's office in exchange for dropping 11 felonies and then ultimately having that expunged from his record. So why is that? And the attorney didn't tell me, yeah, you're, you're on to something there. He just said no comment. So I don't know that that's the case, but it certainly makes sense. There's, there's some reason that this man got away with 11 felonies uh, and didn't offer a single thing to the district attorney in exchange. There are many questions swirling around J.P. Morgan's suicide, questions that will likely forever go unanswered. 
But while trying to find why Henry feels there was a connection between Morgan and Emma Jean Thompson's death, he had one more accusation to share with me. I will tell you this too, on the record, about who I'm calling Tukey. He also confirmed to me that he had daily, daily nefarious illegal dealings with J.P. Morgan. Is Tukey a drug dealer? Correct. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Several months ago, a man who Henry calls Tukey for his and our safety contacted him through his Michael Chapel is Innocent Facebook group, claiming to have information. Tukey and Henry sent private messages back and forth for months. At first, Tukey thought he was messaging Mike Chapel directly and thought Chapel was downplaying him. So he started providing bits of information to get his attention. The conversations you'll hear read come word for word from the messages between Henry and Tukey. Say you, Mike, it's not funny no more. You remember me? All these years I've been trying to tell you what I know. If you remember the case, that night she had checked into the hotel. That night, two cars was at the hotel. Contact me. I might have enough info to free you. I've been knowing this for 30 years. Just who my boss was. You really was framed. Uh, you know, I'll have to say that I started the conversation very skeptical. Got this guy reaching out. He actually thought he was reaching out to Michael Chapel. Mike suggested that he give me some detail that, you know, only a Buford cop would be able to cipher and, and vice versa. And, you know, they, we kind of went back and forth for a little while and, and the guy seemed legit. And then he started telling me his story, and there were multiple, multiple occasions where, first of all, the information he had was just somewhat unbelievable, but verifiable through the record. Though skeptical, Henry was certainly intrigued by what this man had to say. He gave me enough information that, and quite frankly, I had to verify some of his information, like, the cops that were operating at that time, how they operated, you know, where their surveillance points were, things of that nature. I, you know, I kind of put him to the test a couple of times with information that he just absolutely could not have known if he was not kind of where he was and who he says he was. But who is this man known as Tukey? He was the shot caller operating out of the American Inn. They were surveilling the cops. He knew who all the cops on the beats were, and, and he had followed them many times. I told you previously about the American Inn. The seedy motel where a 38 caliber revolver was found in the mud was notorious for drug activity. 
Dealers like Tukey knew which cops were on the beat on any given day. They had to know who would turn the other cheek and who wouldn't. They kept tabs on everyone who regularly came and went to the motel. Tukey also claims to have been at the American Inn the night Emma Jean Thompson was killed. And he claims that he saw the victim that night at the American Inn, and he saw her in the presence of and in the police vehicle of one J.P. Morgan. When he first told me this, you know, it was just, it was very unbelievable, but there is, in fact, on the record, at least one witness that placed her at the American Inn that day. And, and it also says specifically which room she was in. So the first thing I did was ask him what room she was in, and he absolutely pinpoint nailed it to what is in the police records from the handwritten notes of the lead investigator, Jack Burnett. A woman named Margie Wheeler gave a statement in 1993 saying she saw Emma Jean Thompson at the American Inn that night. Tukey now makes the second eyewitness claiming to have seen her there as well, even describing what room she was in. And again, all of the text messages that you'll hear read come word for word from Henry and Tukey's conversation. What room were you in at the hotel? Better yet, what room was she in? Downstairs on the bottom floor by the office, about two or three rooms away from the office. So he absolutely pinpoint nailed which room she was in. I can certainly prove it. And then I said, well, you know what? If, if he did see her that night, then he should have seen her purse and should be able to describe her purse. Imogene's purse, which Chapel allegedly took from her car after shooting her, was not recovered until nearly three years after her death. It was found by a neighbor's child in a rubble pile behind Imogene's trailer. Though multiple grid searches performed immediately after Chapel's arrest turned up nothing. So you have to wonder how and when her purse was placed there, and since Chapel was incarcerated, who placed it there? And so I asked him, I said, well, did you see her purse? Describe the purse. That might be the key to the whole case. I can remember she had it tucked under her left arm. He had an umbrella over her head walking her to the car. And I thought, oh, well, what did her umbrella look like? Do you remember the color of the umbrella? No, they was holding it for. And he paused and said, you know, it's been 30 years, but... Was it brown? Henry asking Tukey for the color of the umbrella he claims to have seen being held over Emma Jean Thompson as she was helped into J.P. Morgan's police car on the night of her death was very intentional. Because Henry has a crime scene photo where you can see a brown umbrella, the same one Tukey described seeing, neatly tucked in the front floorboard of her car. Now there is no way for Tukey to have had access to the crime scene files or photographs. Very few people have these, and it wasn't relevant enough to have been mentioned in the news. So how does he know this? I'm telling you, and it's not a, a very common color for an umbrella, but that is the picture that I have of the umbrella laying on the floorboard. And I said, he saw her that night. Tukey even provided Henry with his take on why Emma Jean Thompson was at the American Inn that night in the first place. She was there because she was scared. Of what? Her son. 
She was scared of her son. She was trying to get away from him with that money. That's why she called him to her room. When attorney Walt Britt's investigator, Dennis Miller, was checking into Michael Thompson, he interviewed a witness that claimed an argument between Michael and Imogene was overheard at their home in which he threatened to kill her. I've also heard from an anonymous source who worked with Michael Thompson at the subway that after Chapel ran the boo on him, he returned to work cursing his mother and saying he wanted to kill her for getting all this stirred up. When I asked Michael Thompson about his relationship with his mother, this is what he told me. We had a good relationship. We, we didn't argue, fight or nothing, you know. He's, you know, no more than, you know, some, you know, some people fight, argue, but me and my mom would just argue. We would never fight or nothing, you know, it's just. No, no more than normal. Yeah. But Tukey's statements paint a different picture of Michael's relationship with his mother. And you have to wonder, how does he know all this if he wasn't really there and didn't really see the things he claims to have seen? He didn't go into details. He just said, you know, hey, her son was, among other things, he was a little geek monster. He was a drug addict. And for whatever reason, she was in fear of him. And so she was with a friend there at the hotel. And as I said, we have that in Jack Burnett's handwritten notes that she was seen at the hotel that day. And the room that she was seen in is the exact room that he says she was in. Henry verified all that he could from the information Tukey provided. That is, until Tukey went dark. I've built a good rapport with him. I'm actually a little worried that I haven't heard from him in a little while now. I reached out to him privately, and I've got two private message channels to reach him, and he's not responded to any of them since October. So I'm a little worried. In one of Tukey's last messages to Henry, he says he received a warning. Why did someone call me and said, watch who I talk to before I end up floating in the lake? So I'm a chill on this convo, but I'll hit you up soon. Henry and I both did quite a bit of digging to find Tukey, but from what we can tell, he's currently incarcerated. We've been unable to make contact with him, though we have spoken to some of his relatives. But before Tukey dropped off the map completely, one claim he made adds a whole new level of holy shit to this story. He said that he had daily nefarious dealings with J.P. Morgan. What did you think about J.P. Morgan? He thought they knew he did that crime. He didn't want to go to prison. Did you have any dealings with him? Daily. What were y'all dealing? Cocaine dealing with his boss, PD boss. He was the street boss. So why did they set up Mike? Because he had to get out the way of the cocaine business. See, it goes deep, man. Mike was on some bullshit, but he did his job, and that's why they set him up. Had to get him out of the way, man. Morgan know he was coming to prison. He thought they knew about him. I just have to preface this with saying that Tukey knew a lot of things that he really had no other way to know. But then a couple of the things he told me, I, I, it's not that I don't believe him. I just don't have any backup and it doesn't really fit with the rest of the evidence that you know the DA collected the police department collected and various investigators have collected and even I and you have collected I can't judge the the merits of it Tukey claims 
that he followed J.P. Morgan that night and that he saw J.P. Morgan pull the trigger and murder Imogene Thompson at the Gwenco muffler shop. More questions arise with Tukey's claim. Why would he make up an accusation like this after so long? And if he did witness this murder, why wait so long to come forward while Chapel continued to sit in prison? How could he have known some of the privileged information he shared with Henry? And of course, I had to question, could Tukey have gotten any of this information from Henry's book? Well, when I first started talking to him, the book wasn't even published yet. So yeah, I doubt very seriously he read my book. Henry also says that much of what Tukey told him isn't even in his book. Tukey's accusation seems to come out of left field, but considering J.P. Morgan's suicide and the wiping of his hard drives immediately after, it certainly raises some speculation. I came into this project with an open mind. I said from the beginning that while I wasn't going to try to prove Chapel's innocence, I wasn't going to try to prove his guilt either. I was simply going to review the case evidence and details. With what I've learned so far, it's hard not to at least question if he'd been treated fairly. From what Henry tells me, though, there's still much more to Chapel's story. In the cases that occur because of the errors and the the unsealed cracks in our justice system, it's not necessarily always intentionally malicious, right? But I don't see in Mike's case anything other than that. I believe wholeheartedly that the men that are responsible for his conviction knew that he was innocent. By the time they got to the trial, I mean, really, by the time they arrested him, but shortly thereafter, they knew. The, the exculpatory evidence existed. The, the things that they had to do to secure that conviction, they knew what they were doing. And so, you know, in this particular case, yeah, malicious is the only way that I could describe it. Henry says that maliciousness really began as Chapel approached his trial, and his attorney, Walt Britt, was removed from the case. As soon as he was removed from the case, he filed with the Georgia Supreme Court to appeal the decision. While that was being reviewed by the Georgia Supreme Court, he put in another motion with the judge saying, hey, look, you're not paying properly for Mike's defense here. And they were allocating like $2,000 for investigative services. Walt Britt was making the case that, hey, look, you know, you're expected to spend a half a million dollars on prosecuting this guy, but you're only going to allow $2,000 for his uh, investigation. You know, that's absurd. But shortly thereafter, he was officially not Mike's attorney any longer, and they appointed a guy by the name of Johnny Moore. He also happens to be the person who hired Danny Porter at the district attorney's office judge appointed him, Mike had no say-so in the matter. The Chapel family had spent nearly every penny they had on retaining Walt Britt for the better part of a year. Now broke, Chapel was at the mercy of a public defender for his death penalty case, a public defender who had a personal relationship with the lead prosecutor, 
Danny Porter. But the new defense team knew that there was one major evidentiary issue that they had to overcome. Blood belonging to Emma Jean Thompson found on Chapel's raincoat. Now, the first step in creating a defensive strategy was to assess exactly what they were up against by reviewing the forensic evidence. The following has been a point of contention for nearly three decades. So in the lead up to the trial, the defense team wanted to take a look at the evidence, right? Which they're entitled to do. So they, you know, they went over to the uh, GBI headquarters. The defense team was made up of Johnny Moore, an attorney by the name of Elizabeth Via Rogan, a serologist that they had hired, and the investigator, the private investigator. There were two representatives of the district attorney's office there as well. You would think that it would be protocol that when handling physical evidence, they would use gloves. Dr. Goff, who was the head of the crime lab, is the one that's displaying the evidence for the defense team, never puts on a pair of latex gloves. He goes in and he pulls out the evidence bags containing Imogene Thompson's clothes. As you can imagine, her clothing was relatively blood-soaked. It's now been a year and a half, so that blood has all dried and, you know, become flaky. Erin Chapel can barely contain her disgust at how this review of the evidence was conducted. What people don't know is when our attorney, attorneys, and our investigator went to the crime lab and they got Imogene Thompson, the victim's clothes out from the freezer and put them on this steel table and they started to thaw while they're taking pictures and manipulating them, you know. They're supposed to, in, in my understanding, put wax paper or something down underneath it. They did not. And the defense team, you know, is taking pictures of this as it's being done. And you could visibly see flakes of her blood kind of being left behind on the table as one piece of evidence, you know, in the next is laid out. There's flakes of her blood on the table. Well, then he goes into the cooler in the lab and he walks out with this green igloo cooler, opens it up, and the first item he takes out is Michael Chappell's rain slicker. And he lays it on the same table that he had just laid Imogene Thompson's bloody clothing with flakes of her blood. Keep in mind, it just came out of a freezer or a cooler, so it's relatively moist. And he starts spreading it out with his ungloved hands onto the table. Once he's spread it out so they can see it, he flips it over and does the same thing, spreads it out with his hands. Well, what's that doing? That's contaminating the rain jacket. That's contaminating evidence. The possible contamination of key evidence is one of the many claims Chapel has made over the years to show that the case against him was compromised from the start. But with limited resources, how could he effectively prove these claims? He needed to be heard. He needed the attention of the people. The International Olympic Committee has awarded the 1996 Olympic Games to the city of Atlanta. <laughs> 
1995, the eyes of the entire world were on Atlanta as the city was gearing up to host the 96 Summer Olympic Games. And surely, with that level of attention on the city, the televised trial of a uniformed police officer accused of murder would have simultaneously been one of the biggest media events in the country. And it might have been, had it not been overshadowed by one of the largest murder trials in history. What has been going on down below as uh, the, uh, the presumed uh, vehicle of O.J. Simpson is still traveling very slowly northbound along the five freeway. Pictures of the scene outside the home of O.J. Simpson in Brentwood, California. O.J. Simpson uh, formally charged today with two counts of murder. It's no disguise. Was supposed it makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. One. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of penal an estimated 100 million people watched O.J. Simpson's not guilty verdict be announced on October 3, 1995. But for the duration of Chapel's trial, Court TV aired it live each morning, then switched to the Simpson trial feed each afternoon. And though his trial was overshadowed by the Simpson trial, it still gave him a national audience. Mike, did you see Emma Jean Thompson on the night of April 15, 1993? No, I did not. Did you rob Imogene Thompson of the money that had been left in her trailer following burglary? No, I did not. Chapel's trial began on August 22, 1995, and would last for five of the longest weeks of his life. A life that now hung in the balance and rested in the hands of 12 jurors, 12 strangers, who didn't know him, didn't know what kind of man he was, or how he loved being a police officer and helping others. Chapel felt confident, though, that he would come out on top and everyone would see through the vicious lies that Gwinnett County had been reporting about him. He anxiously waited for the day when he would undoubtedly prove once and for all that he was not the murderer Danny Porter and others claimed he was. Soon, he told himself, this would all be over and life would return to normal. Two years I'd sat in that cage and thought about this and waited for my chance. And here it was. It was my chance to do battle with my antagonist, Danny Porter. I'm thinking we beat the brakes off of him, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, we got up there and told the truth and people were gonna see through this. But that day would never come for Michael Chapel. At least, it hasn't yet. His wife, Erin, reflects on how this all felt for her and how it is that she keeps moving forward. I was so devastated and so broken. I couldn't help him. And the Holy Spirit said, exonerate, exonerate. He will be exonerated. So that's just one thing in 29 years. So we've held on to, I mean, he gave us bits and pieces to hold on to. I couldn't have survived this. I used to think, how can people die of a broken heart? Not being heartless, I just didn't know. Now I know. Because it just rips you in half and it stays open. It's an open wound that never closes.
In the Land of Lies is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and performed the original music score. Story editor is Jason Hoke, and executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Creative producer is Henry Ball. And you can find Henry's book, Michael Chapel, at storiedpress.store. For updates about this and all of my podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kipe. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review. And as always, thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.